Hi there, and welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. As always, you can email us at food at markbittman.com. We will respond, and we do love to hear from you. Please also consider subscribing to our Thrice Weekly Newsletter, The Bitman Project. That's at bitmanproject.com. Please subscribe, too, to this podcast and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Needless to say, we appreciate it if you rate us highly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. 
Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. We have an unusual and interesting guest today, Michael Jacobson, Michael F. Jacobson, to be precise. Before I tell those of you who don't know who he is a little bit about Mike, I will say that I came across my copy of his book, which he co-wrote and has a forward by Ralph Nader, published in 1975, a collection of essays on the food crisis called Food for people, not for profit. 80% of it could have been written yesterday. So some things have changed, and in part, thanks to Mike Jacobson, many things have not, or have just gotten worse. I was so amazed by coming across this book, which I read back in the day. Mike Jacobson was, for 40 years, executive director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, probably the most important NGO related to nutrition and food of the late 20th and early 21st century. And I'm not diminishing its importance now. Center for Science and the Public Interest publishes Nutrition Action Health Letter, which in the days of newsletters was the newsletter about nutrition that you wanted to read. Incredibly influential and very ahead of its time in talking about the junk food related chronic disease crisis. CSPI led efforts to win passage of laws regarding the nutrition facts label on food packaging, calorie information on chain restaurant menus, the law defining organic foods, and um, especially an FDA regulation that banned artificial trans fats. We will talk about this, but Mike is currently working on a project that would establish the National Food Museum in Washington, D.C. And as I said, we will talk about that. He is a national food hero, and um, it's a pleasure to talk with him. Welcome, Michael. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us on Food with Mark Bittman. Thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate uh, your interviewing me. I called originally. I reached out originally. And um, it's funny. you You were kind of an iconic figure in my career, but we never really knew each other, and you were busy making things happen at CSPI, and I was busy sort of writing about them or writing about things like them. Then I came across this book, which no one is going to see, but we're going to post on the website or something, called Food for People, Not for Profit. I came upon it on my own bookshelf, and it's a source book on the food crisis. I should say more carefully, the title is Food for People, Not for Profit, Uh, Introduction by Ralph Nader, a series of essays edited by you and a woman named Catherine Lerza, published in, I'm going to guess, 76? Almost, 1975. 75. And I was sort of like, 
Oh my God, this could have been written yesterday. This is the most depressing thing I've ever <laughs> seen. Um, but it's not true that there's been zero progress in the last 50 years. And um, but it is equally true that many of the same issues haunt us. So I know probably the best way to start is if you if you talk a little bit about what you were doing before you got to this place, the place of putting together this book and then the founding of CSPI, the Center for Science and Public Interest, which happened after this. And you were obviously you were a young man at the time. So if you could just give us that little bit of background, I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah, I'll give you a short history of what I've done. I have a PhD in microbiology from MIT. And I got it in 1969, which was a time, as as you know, of huge unrest. At MIT, there was a lot of anti-Vietnam War activity, a lot of civil rights work going on. And I wanted to use my uh, scientific knowledge uh, more directly than going into postdoctoral research, though I loved research. So I happened to meet Ralph Nader and asked if I could come down to Washington and work with him. And he said, sure, love to have you. Of course, I'm not going to pay you, but come on down anyhow. (laughs) And I managed to get a fellowship. I went down there. And on the first day I was there, uh, I met with Ralph and one of his primary deputies, Jim Turner. And Ralph says, Jim, here's this guy Jacobson with a PhD from MIT. What are we going to do with him? And as it turned out, Jim had just finished a book on the Food and Drug Administration called Chemical Feast. And Jim said, well, why don't we have Jacobson write a book about food additives, which the FDA regulates? And I said, fine, Um, except what's a food additive and how do you write a book? (laughs) I was was a total science nerd. I'd written some uh, scientific papers, but a book? And, you know, I had no, no involvement in food issues. Of course, I ate every day, but, you know, just kind of standard stuff. And, but they said, just uh, go on, go to the library, you'll figure it out. And so I did. And uh, I wrote a book called Eater's Digest, which was published mm. in 1972. And around that time, I, I had met two other scientists who had volunteered with Ralph Nader, and we decided to split off and start our own organization, Center for Science in the Public Interest. And then one of my main conclusions from the book on food additives was that food additives weren't very important compared to the foods in which they were used in terms of health harm. And so then I wrote a book on nutrition, which was partly a way of learning about nutrition, And um, that was Nutrition Scoreboard. And that turned out to be extremely popular. And that helped fund the Center for Science in the Public Interest for the first few years. And so so I wrote a couple of books. We published a couple of posters based on each of those books, which were extremely popular. And we probably sold a million, at least a million posters. Wow. So... um, and so I was very interested in public education. 
So this was, what, three years after the first Earth Day, which was 1970. And I'd actually been to the very first Earth Day celebration at the University of Michigan. And I thought, well, why don't we have Food Day? Because food is so important. And the big issues were hunger, corporate power, and health. And there was some um, kind of overlap in, in those issues. So we said we published a press release saying Food Day is April 17th. Uh, uh, 1975, and decided to write a handbook for Food Day participants, which is Food for People, Not for Profit. And so that came out shortly before uh, Food Day. And when you wrote to me saying you just saw a Food for People, Not for Profit, I pulled it off my bookshelf. And I, like you, was, I thought it was remarkable that some of the same problems persisted. Some of the, There's been great improvement in some areas um, and in huge setbacks in other areas. But it's like a time capsule of looking it's at amazing. the food system and seeing what has changed and, and what hasn't changed. I'm just going to read some essay titles because I think it's so clear that you can draw the parallels. Big farms try to kick the chemical habit. Beating a drought organically, the new pesticide threat, concentration in the food industry, the sugar-coated children's hour by, of course, Robert Choate, which I'm sure we can talk about him, the real villain in heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, <laughs> um, you know, I want to ask you about what's changed and what's remained the same, but maybe we'll get to that a little later, though, because I th I think it's a curious thing. I'd like to hear about the realization that food additives are not as important as the food that they're going into, which is for many people a kind of revelation. And, and it's not, I mean, I'm sure you get the same questions that I do from people who are not in the, in the food world, such as, well, what do you think about all these additives that are being put into food? What do you think about this one? And what do you think about that one? And probably, again, like you, I don't think about them much, but that's probably due to your work. And that does seem like quite a, um, like an epiphany. Yeah, you know, the, at the what time- What the story was there. There were, there were a few books that had been written about food additives. And I read them and it seemed like, Every food additive was a killer based probably on how many letters were in the name of the additive, you know, mm. sodium stearoil lactylate. You know, it sounds dreadful, but, <laughs> but it, it's not harmful. And so I gave an objective look at the additive, looked at their health consequences. Um, sodium nitrite was clearly a problem. Food dyes were a problem, certain of them anyhow, where there was evidence of harm. And a, and a couple of others, but most food additives are innocuous. But my other takeaway was that even though each food additive individually is harmless, they have made possible the enormous proliferation of junk food. Junk foods couldn't survive, couldn't exist without the artificial colorings and flavorings, or now natural colorings and flavorings, even though the foods are still garbage, 
the mm-hmm. thickening agents, the stabilizers, the preservatives, all of these chemicals put together enable us to have all, all the crap that you see when you walk into a, a 7-Eleven or a Wawa or a, a highway rest stop or a supermarket. Or a supermarket, yeah. Um, so in, in a way, that is the insidious harm from food additives that are individually safe for the most part, but um, undergird that enormous proliferation of junk that came onto the market after World War II. Can you talk a little bit about what CSPI's original goals were and what your work was and maybe some of its successes as CSPI still exists? You were executive director for, what, 30 or 40 years, but are no longer or were you executive director for 50 years? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the organization still exists. But can you talk a little about initial goals, how they changed, what you see as big successes, and what you're most disappointed about? Yeah. Uh, when we founded CSPI in 1971, I was 28 years old. The other two co-founders were a couple of years older, but we were real neophytes. <laughs> we had no idea how you start and run an organization. But somehow, by hook or by crook, we got it going. And um, we were in Washington, D.C. We had no lawyers on our staff for years. And that turned out to be a serious mistake, even though we took it to be a point of pride. But uh, we were trying to influence policies without having people who understood how you make policies, how you change policies. but uh, And so we had three of us. I was the one who had the food area. Another guy worked on toxic chemicals, and another guy worked on air pollution. And so we had our three little divisions. You know, so initially we started on food additives, my division, and then we broadened to nutrition, did a little work on agribusiness. I don't want to uh, exaggerate how much we did. And so we were feeling our way, but I think we were the pretty much the first organization that identified foods as a major contributor to chronic diseases and said, let's change policies, let's make things happen. And we helped put the nutrition issue on the map. Now, the American Heart Association had been working on these issues, you know, generally pretty quietly. But uh, it was hardly an activist organization. So we mm-hmm. um, jumped into the scene with um, really uh, lightning bolts and uh, uh, generated uh, a lot of publicity. And, uh, and I think of our major accomplishments, we helped put nutrition on the map. That was a big thing. Previously, big there was Adele Davis who, you know, again, everything was dangerous. You got to take vitamin pills totally unscientific, not in touch with policies. So uh, over the years, we worked on a whole bunch of issues and had some successes and some failures. In terms of health successes, I think one of our biggest ones was our battle over trans fat, which began in the early 1990s and lasted until 2018, the deadline for getting trans fat out of the food supply. So what was that, 15 years or so? You know, in the 1980s, we and everybody else 
almost everybody else thought trans fat was harmless. Trans fat is, uh, was produced in partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, um, which is a very versatile, very cheap oil that was in countless uh, packaged foods and fried foods at restaurants. We jumped on the, the first reliable scientific evidence to show that trans fat raised the bad cholesterol and lowered the good cholesterol in humans. And that was a Dutch study, and it was confirmed by the Department of Agriculture, I think, in 1993. And as the evidence accumulated, we began demanding more and more from the Food and Drug Administration. Mm -hmm. And in the early 2000s, the Danish government banned partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, uh, almost a complete ban. And we had only been calling for labeling at that point. But after that, the evidence had built up so much. Harvard School of Public Health, Walter Willett, had done studies estimating that trans fat was causing tens of thousands of premature deaths a year, as many as 100,000 premature wow. deaths a year. An enormous problem from a substance that people had thought was harmless. Right. It was a monounsaturated fat, which are generally harmless, like olive oil. So we waged this battle. It took 15 years. Finally, Food and Drug Administration banned it, and consumers never noticed the difference because the food industry was able to replicate the taste and texture of foods using other oils. You know, some of the heroes were the farmers. See, there was a cascade of events. Consumers were demanding uh, safer food, healthier food. Food processors went back to the oil processors and said, we need healthier oils. The oil processors went back to the farmers and said, you got to grow healthier oil seed crops. And the farmers did. And, you know, it took several years for that to happen. And we were using 8 billion pounds of partially hydrogenated vegetable oil a year, an enormous amount. And you can imagine the enormous change that that had to um, force on growers of canola and soybeans in particular. So the farmers in the way are the heroes. They made this possible and they were paid a bonus initially for these different crops. So trans fat was a huge accomplishment. Getting nutrition labeling was a big deal. And I don't think it's had enormous effects on the public's health, but for huge numbers of individuals, it's a godsend. People watching how much saturated fat, how much um, cholesterol, how much sodium they're consuming. And speaking of sodium, CSPI first went after sodium in 1978 when we petitioned the Food and Drug Administration to require better labeling and to limit sodium levels in processed foods because sodium was contributing to heart attacks and strokes. Right. And that was a little controversial back then, but there was concern about excess salt in the diet for quite a few years. And um, the White House Conference on uh, Nutrition in 1969 pinpointed excess sodium consumption as a health concern and urged better labeling, urged companies to cut down on sodium. Nothing happened. Over the years, that was, I think, our longest standing battle. We, we generated lots of publicity. We published a book. 
We petitioned the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA did a little bit. Uh, then in the early 1980s, we sued the FDA for not doing more. Uh, then we got nutrition labeling. That was in 1990. And we had to see if that would have any effect on sodium consumption. Nothing had any effect on sodium consumption. <laughs> so around 2000, we, we went back to court and said, uh, notwithstanding what the FDA said it would do, nothing has happened. And by then, there was a huge amount of evidence that excess sodium was killing people. And the DASH diet studies provided very clear-cut evidence. If you increase sodium intake, blood pressure goes up in a matter of weeks. So we were back in the battle. Senator Harkin was a help. We got him to earmark some money for the National Academy of Sciences to do a study, not on whether excess salt is bad, but what the government could do to lower sodium intake. And the National Academy of Sciences published an excellent study and recommended limits on sodium and so on. And so it, the FDA immediately said it wasn't going to set limits. But six years later, it did publish voluntary limits. It said that it had two-year goals and 10-year goals. The two-year goals turned into two and a half years. And in, I think, 2024, and so it's a couple of years down the line, they still haven't finalized 10-year goals or any intermediate goals. Mm. But sodium consumption over all those years, from 1977 till now, sodium consumption has not declined. It stayed right. about the same, and it's still causing tens of thousands of premature deaths every year. We'll be right back with more from me and Mike Jacobson. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include Dynamic Sky Panorama Glass Roof, Front Row Massaging Seats, you know you want that, Available 33-inch All-Terrain Tires, which you will want, 
when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, folks. A word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in, made in pots and pans? The braised short ribs? Made in, made in. The Rohan duck? Made in, made in. The heritage pork chop? You got it. Made in, made in. Which isn't surprising. Made in has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high-end cookware for years. For the simple reason that Made in makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Made In is sold online, so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other iron brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're Made In, Made In. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's MadeInCookware.com. Thanks. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Hi, folks. We have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day, and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So, what's the solution? 
Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code Bitman. I want to talk about the differences slash similarities between the 70s and maybe early 80s and now. Obviously, it doesn't take a brilliant observer of the social situation to know that the 60s and 70s were a time of great change and activism, and people on the left were pushing for change in a way that they weren't before and haven't really since. This happened in not only in the student movement, but it was happening in Congress and in, in the sort of adult world at the same time. <laughs> and it seems to me there was a moment, there was a time in the 70s when Robert Choate, who we mentioned before, was was ranting and raving about the, the evils of breakfast cereal and children, and other people were talking about other dangers in foods and what should be done to make foods better, some of the work that you were doing in the early days. And it seemed that there was, that Congress and FDA were more receptive to these kinds of discussions back then, and then it abruptly changed when Reagan became president in 1980, and from my perspective, sort of kneecapped the Federal Trade Commission and prevented them from moving forward on on making changes in food production. I wonder what you were there and you were paying attention. I wonder what your perception of that era is and where we might be today if it hadn't, if I'm right in this perception, how progress might have been made uh, if things had continued on the track they were on in the 60s and 70s. You know, I think it was the 1960s that were a period in the late 1960s, a period of, of progress on, on many fronts. In the late 1960s, Ralph Nader pushed through countless consumer protection laws. Uh, meat and poultry inspections were greatly improved. Freedom of Information Act, the uh, OSHA for um, occupational safety and health, auto safety. And that progress really shook up industry. And, you know, some people were afraid of socialism, greater government involvement. Industry greatly ratcheted up its lobbying efforts on, on all these different fronts. They moved trade associations from Chicago to Washington, got much more involved in, in the political efforts, as they were being run over by activists in Congress, and um, even Nixon, you know, he he was no great liberal, but at least he signed legislation passed by Democratic Congresses 
But industry got fed up with that. They put their foot down. They increased campaign contributions, and hired lobbyists, and really became active. And then Reagan came and um, made government the bad guy. And industry has been on a, a rampage ever since, notwithstanding you know, Jimmy Carter being relatively progressive, Clinton being relatively progressive, and, and so on. But, um, you know, both, you know, liberals uh, decry the lack of progress under Clinton and Obama, but forget that Republicans held control of Congress in most of those years. And, and Congress has become more and more radically right, conservative, than it ever was before. And in the 1960s, there was some friendships between Democrats and the Republicans. The Republicans weren't anywhere near as reactionary as they've become now. Uh, so I think that's, that's a big thing. And on the other hand, um, activists have become much more sophisticated also. Uh, do a lot more lobbying, have much heftier uh, Washington staffs, do a lot of grassroots activism. So when you can't do anything in D.C., you see what you can get done in New York City, uh, mm. California, uh, Washington, Oregon in particular. And sometimes progress at the local level leads to progress nationally. And that's what happened with trans fat. New York City uh, banned trans fat in restaurants and bakeries. And then that was replicated in Philadelphia, Seattle, uh, and then the biggie was California. And companies that, like a McDonald's, didn't want to make different foods in California and New York City than it did in Tennessee and Kentucky. And that led to a national ban, Similar with, similarly with calorie labeling at restaurants. But getting national legislation through now is extraordinarily difficult, even when you have champions like Michelle Obama. And uh, there was some progress with uh, especially school foods and anti-hunger programs under Obama. But it's tough. You know, and there's certain economic trends, there economic imperative, imperatives even, that are tough to counter. A couple of examples. In Food for People, Not-for-Profit, the early 1970s, we, the book includes an article bemoaning the fact that 20 grocers, just 20 grocers, had captured 40% of the retail food market. Oh, man, I hate now, to hear what that number Walmart is Walmart alone yes. con controls 25% of the food market. So what, three companies maybe control 40%? And uh, there was another article in our book discussing the meatpacking industry, where four beef packers control 25% of the beef market, the beef packing mm. market. Today, four controls 70% of the market. The dairy industry, small dairy farmers have uh, almost entirely disappeared, just a, a, a tiny fraction of what there used to be. And it's huge farms in Texas, Colorado, and California you know, real um, agribusiness operations where the cows don't don't see a blade of natural grass. They right. they have that's where the dairy industry is. So um, 
you know, and, and, and farms have gotten, all kinds of farms have gotten bigger and bigger. Organic farms are not organic farms. So, and that corporate concentration issue, you know, it just seems like it's just far more economical for huge farms to sell milk, produce milk, than for local uh, small farms. And the federal government isn't about to give huge support to small farms. And I think, uh, you know, because of lobbying pressure and consumer pressure, would consumers want to pay 25% more, 50% more for milk or, or whatever? You know, so there are economic imperatives that are, that are in force. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to give you a little time to talk about your new project. And then I have, after that, I'll have one final question. But first, I want to just point out that in Food for People, Not for Profit, again, published in 1975, Russell Parker, who was an FTC official, wrote a piece called Concentration in the Food Industry. So if you're talking about it being a problem now, it was recognized as a problem by you and others, but even by people in federal government 50 years ago when this book was put together. And yet we've seen nothing, as you just said, we've seen nothing but further concentration since that time. I know you have a new project and I know you're excited about it. So I want to give you an opportunity to to talk about it, and it is this the food museum? So, why don't you yeah. give us a few minutes on that? So, obviously, I've always been interested in educating the public about food issues through books like Food for People, Not for Profit, and and many others. And I stepped down as executive director of CSPI in 2017. Uh, wrote another book on salt, uh, Salt Wars, and then COVID hit. And when museums weren't closed, they were empty. And I went around to a lot of museums because I enjoy museums, I always have. And I had the epiphany that there was no national food museum. The food exhibits occasionally in one, one museum or another. And I thought, wouldn't it be fabulous to have a museum, ideally in Washington, that would educate consumers in a fun way about a whole range of, of food issues. And I think on, on the kind of soft side, the history of the human diet, going back to the Stone Age, the diversity of human diets currently, there are still hunter-gatherers in a few corners of the world, or the role of food in religion. You know, it's very interesting things. But then also getting into food advertising as a window into the American culture the racist advertising that we could see on television and in print in the 1950s and earlier. But also importantly, the effect of food on health for better and for worse, and the effect of agriculture on the environment, air pollution, water pollution, and especially climate change. So um, a, a museum could bring all these kinds of issues to the public in innovative, interactive ways that people enjoy. And this, wouldn't, this won't be a preachy uh, museum, but uh, I think it has great potential. And so in the last couple of years, I've begun learning, you know, I, I said initially, 
uh, Nader said, write a book on food additives. And I said, okay, how do you write a book? So I had an idea for starting a food museum. How do you start a museum? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. So, I, so I've learned and I've talked to people who've started museums, museum consultants, curators, and so on. And we have a website, www.food.museum. Just food.museum is enough, uh, where we've put up uh, a little bit of our vision for what you what somebody could see, what you can learn at a food museum. And now we're at a stage, we're developing a strategic plan, and then we'll have to suffer through several years of fundraising. Because <laughs> as I look, I look around at museums, most of them have been started by billionaires. And so uh, uh, we'll be do- doing fundraising over the next uh, couple of years to uh, uh, create what I think will be a, f- a fabulous museum. Sounds like an awesome project. I have, uh, as we discussed a week or two ago, I have a, a similar new project, also a nonprofit, and I'm in a similar place. Anyway, all very compelling and enlightening. Thank you so much. We will stay in touch and we will stay, uh, we'll follow eagerly your progress with the Food Museum when you start talking to those billionaires. Um, we do ask every guest one last question, and it is, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, boy. I had um, corn on the cob and my old standby, rice and vegetables, brown rice and vegetables. <laughs> and, You're such a um, What? <laughs> and I have, How do you cook those brown I, rice and vegetables? I have, I have to admit that um, one of my loves is ice cream. And so I ended the evening with with some ice cream. My diet is not perfect. (laughs) No, no one's is. But anyway, thanks again, Michael, for joining us, and um, we'll be in touch. Great. It's been fun. Uh, Great to see you, Mark. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to the great Michael Jacobson for appearing with us. As you can tell, he's been an inspiration to me, and I hope this conversation was an inspiration to you. Please check out his latest brainchild, The Food Museum, at nationalfoodmuseum.org. Consider donating to that. Thank you also to my usual co-host and producer, Kate Bittman, and to our engineer, Davis Lloyd. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast and to our newsletter, The Bittman Project, at bitmanproject.com. And we will see you next week when we will have somebody awesome. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.